Hello and welcome back to Florida Politics Reviewed. I'm your host, Nora O'Neill. This is a podcast out of Florida Political Review, Florida's preeminent student political journal. For more in-depth coverage of Florida politics, visit our website, floridapoliticalreview.com, and follow us on Twitter at FLA Review. In today's episode, we discuss whether Florida schools could see student-athlete unions after the world of college sports changed dramatically over a name, image, and likeness policy shift. Then, Florida manatees are dying rapidly. What is the state doing to protect them? Lastly, the state is suffering a nurse shortage that is only getting worse. Where do we go from here? All this and more on today's episode of Florida Politics Review. The world of college sports was changed dramatically this summer when the National Collegiate Athletic Association's Board of Directors announced athletes would be able to benefit from their name, image, and likeness, a monumental policy shift after decades of stringent rules preventing any kind of profit for college athletes. I'm here with FPR writer Andrew Taramikin. How are you today? I'm good. Excited to be back on the show. Of course. We love having you. Um, So briefly, could you tell me a little bit more about the battle for athletes to benefit from their name, image, and likeness? Yeah, sure. So as these things often go, the fight for college athlete rights and labor representation kind of happened very, very slowly and then almost overnight. So in 2014, there was a Supreme Court case, O'Bannon versus NCAA, that determined that the NCAA had been violating antitrust law by denying players any kind of compensation for their name, image, and likeness, uh, as the organization had been doing for commercial purposes for decades. Uh, And following that, in 2021, uh, the Supreme Court ruled in a following case, NCAA v. Alston, that they had been violating antitrust law yet again by denying players non-cash compensation. So I believe the case surrounded a football player at West Virginia University, and it was regarding, you know, allowing athletes to have computers paid for by the school, academic materials, internships, uh, other forms of compensation besides payment that benefited student athletes but cost the school's money. The NCAA was against that, uh, but the court found that that was also in violation of antitrust law. So there have been a series of kind of cases ruling that the way you treat these thousands of college athletes is in clear violation of antitrust law, of labor laws, and states, including Florida, Florida was actually a leader in this area, began issuing policies uh, favoring college athletes. So Florida signed a bill in 2020 to allow players to benefit from their name, image, and likeness. So following this kind of rapid string of defeats from the courts, from the state governments, the NCAA announced on June 30th that they were creating an interim policy regarding NIL rights, which would allow player to benefit from players to benefit from their likeness. And they said this is interim because there's too many moving parts for them to create anything permanent right now because now we're at a point where so many states have different rules. It's unclear what the federal rules are. The Supreme Court keeps saying different things. Congress and the White House keep saying different things. We had a change in administration recently. So there isn't any clear answer right now, but it seems that the tide is almost undeniably skewing towards players being recognized as employees and players being entitled to compensation. You go on to say that the idea that college athletes are employees for not only their schools, but also the NCAA and the conferences, 
conferences adds a whole new dimension to the debate over student-athletes' labor rights and potentially offers a new straightforward path to unionization. Tell me about this path. Yeah, sure. So in light of NCAA v. Alston, the general counsel for the National Labor Relations Board, uh, Jennifer Abruzzo, she issued a memo basically reaffirming the position that college athletes are employees and therefore they're entitled to all statutory protections. And with the National Labor Relations Board, that obviously refers to the right to unionization, the right to organizing. Um, so there was a there was a similar case involving Northwestern University football players in 2015 trying to unionize. And the Midwestern body of the NLRB supported that. Uh, they said that they saw it as these students are employees, so they should be entitled to employee rights. But it went to the national NLRB and the board deliberated for over a year. And after all the back and forth, they decided not to make a decision. Um, you know, some might debate whether that was due to just a lack of political will or not. But it their their justification was that the NLRB deals with private unions. They do not deal with public sector unions. And a lot of the nation's largest college athletic programs, including most of the large college athletic programs in the state of Florida and most of the South, are at public universities. So look at the University of Florida, Florida State University. That would not; Those are not public sector employees, or they are public sector employees uh, if they count as employees. So it wouldn't be within the NLRB's jurisdiction to rule over those kinds of unions. So going back to the joint employer theory of liability, that comes into play when the general counsel says conferences and even the NCAA may be a second employer of these athletes, because even if their member schools are state institutions, conferences are private institutions. So you think of the SEC, you think of the Big Ten, those are private entities, even if their member schools are all public. So potentially, you know, the NLRB would not have jurisdiction over a University of Florida Athletes Union, but it would have jurisdiction over an SEC union. So that's significant because it really clears up the opportunities for there to be a more cohesive, either regional or national policy regarding student athlete organization. And it's worth noting that I, I was referring to them as players earlier. Uh, the general counsel also says she avoids the term uh, student athlete because the NCAA basically coined this to reinforce this idea of amateurism and basically to rhetorically kind of convince people that these guys aren't pros, they are students. So the general counsel says she's not going to use that term because it's kind of playing into the NCAA's rhetoric. Uh, so she calls them players at academic institutions. Where do you think Governor DeSantis would stand on a student-athlete union? That's a good question. Um, and one that I can't say is necessarily predictable. You know, like I was saying, there's so many moving parts here that this isn't kind of there, there's way too much to predict when you look at, you know, hundreds, even thousands of colleges with thousands of athletes uh, and, you know, not just different schools, different conferences, different divisions, different sports. There's so many moving parts in all of this. And then you get to Ron DeSantis and really the Republican Party as a whole has been kind of interesting on this issue, but particularly Governor DeSantis. Uh, a bit about him. He's a former Division One baseball player uh, from Yale University. You know, he... And he'll even tell you that, you know, when he was a young man, he was more concerned with sports than politics. So, you know, this is an issue that I'm willing to bet is very personal to Governor DeSantis. Uh, and when he signed SB 646 last year, uh, 
that allowed players to benefit from their likeness. He said very openly, he's like, I'm proud that we are leading the fight for student-athlete rights. He was, you know, sounding uniquely pro-labor for a Republican. But Republicans are not traditionally fans of organized labor. And Florida's public universities are not particularly friendly to organized labor. You know, if you look at various incidents, you know, you think of COVID safety regulations and the difficulty that faculty and staff unions have had uh, grappling with university administrations and state government. You think of some of the food service justice fights that you've seen on college campuses like UF and FSU and how administrations and state government really have not been amenable to the interests of these labor groups and labor advocates at all. But Governor DeSantis has also been very vocal about supporting student athletes' rights as employers, as employees, and preventing exploitation of students, uh, student athletes as employees. So it's hard to predict, really. Um, you know, last spring we talked about another fascinating story where Marco Rubio came out in support of an Amazon union. Marco Rubio had like an 8% lifetime score from the AFL-CIO. Uh, but he supported the Amazon union mainly as a blow to Jeff Bezos more than anything. And I wouldn't be surprised if you see something like that here, uh, not necessarily motivated by spite, like I think Rubio was motivated by, but really by, uh, really by, you know, Ron DeSantis kind of sticking to his guns and saying, you know, I want this to be a good school, a good state for student athletes. Um, so, you know, maybe we will see Ron DeSantis come out in support of a student athlete union, I wouldn't expect him to, you know, be the endorsed by the AFL-CIO anytime soon. But, uh, but you know, you never know. He's he's definitely been very vocal on this issue. And President Joe Biden has also said he believes, you know, all employees are entitled to compensation for their labor. So this may be an area where you just see a lot of bipartisan uh, cooperation. Because I think, you know, the NCAA has lost this rhetorical fight. And it's really about just where is this movement going? Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't be surprised if the governor was more amenable to this labor movement than pretty much any other. You can follow Andrew on Twitter at Andrew, T-A-R-A-M-Y-K-I-N. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Almost 1,000 manatees have died so far in 2021 and the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission is searching for ways to put an end to the death of Florida's gentle giants. I'm here with FPR writer Mia Cafaro. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. So what is causing the deaths of these manatees? Well, manatees need to be in water that's at least 68 degrees Fahrenheit to maintain a safe internal body temperature. So normally they're attracted to warm water springs or areas that are warmed by power plant discharges, especially during the winter. Um, but unfortunately, these habitats are being disturbed and in some cases are being destroyed by human activity. You explained that a research team headed by FWC's Chip Deutsch is studying the ecosystems in the Gulf of Mexico to determine how to protect and restore them so they are optimal for manatee habitation. The team received $125,000 in funding. Tell me about this team and its goals. The main goals of Deutsch's team's team is to assess existing ecosystems, predict how these ecosystems will evolve, and then determine the gaps along the Gulf Coast where ecosystems need to be either created or restored. 
So these ecosystems need to be sites that can stay warm enough year round to foster manatee habitation. One site Deutsch discussed with me lies at the head of the FACA Union Canal in Southwest Florida. In past decades, this canal formed a natural thermocline, which became a warm water refuge for manatees. But scientists have noticed in the past years that the temperatures in this area are cooling. So to preserve this area, the FWC came up with a plan to create a passive thermal basin. And they did this by dredging small pools and then connecting them with the creek. And the pools are deep enough to get input from groundwater, which makes them warm. In addition to restoring warm water habitats for manatees, there's also been discussion about allowing state and federal agencies to feed manatees, which is usually prohibited. How does this work? Well, shockingly, manatees need 100 to 200 pounds of seagrass and weeds every day to survive. And since they all tend to congregate in the same places around those warm springs or near power plants, the food supply in this area has been significantly diminished. Um, one of their main habitats is the Indian River Lagoon, and in this area, up to 90% of the seagrasses have vanished over the past decade, mostly due to algae blooms that block sunlight and prevent more seagrass from growing. So Gil McCray, the director of the Florida Fish and Wildlife Services Research Institute in St. Petersburg, uh, recently asked lawmakers for $7 million in 2022, all focused towards feeding manatees, and he's also considering allowing his agency to temporarily feed manatees. Um, and although manatees do desperately need this access to more food, the state agencies are still hesitant to move forward with the feeding plan out of fear that the animals will become dependent on humans for food. You can follow Mia on Twitter at Mia C-A-F-A-R-O. Thanks so much for being here. Florida could face a shortage of nurses, with only 59,000 nurses projected to be employed in the state by 2035. This number could be detrimental for the state as the number of nurses would not meet Floridians' healthcare demand as the population continues to increase. I'm here with FPR writer Alexander Staller. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm good. So we're deep into the pandemic now. Tell me a little bit about this shortage and if COVID has affected it. Um, well, COVID has definitely affected the nursing shortage. I think nationwide throughout the pandemic, the country has seen how nurses have been affected by the long hours, um, physically, emotionally, and mentally. There's burnout rates increased, um, stress and anxiety and depression also increased. And a lot of nurses were just very strongly taking into consideration their place in the nursing workforce. And especially after the pandemic kind of lightened up a bit, um, according to a report by the IHS market, the nursing shortage specifically in Florida should be considered a crisis for Florida's healthcare system. And COVID-19 has definitely affected, COVID-19 has definitely um, been a factor in that crisis, it being dubbed a crisis. And according to Mary Mayhew, who I interviewed in my article. She is the CEO of the Florida Hospital Association. She also agreed that after almost over a year of just working in um, COVID conditions, COVID-19 itself has just absolutely exasperated the workforce shortage. And so how does Florida compare to other states? Florida specifically, according to the um, registered nursing report, is the state with the highest nursing shortage. And this is a lot 
because of the fact that Florida's rising population of people over 65 is just not and it's just not kind of meeting up with the um, demand of nurses that are needed. So this is very much like a supply and demand situation. And according to Mayhew, the turnover rate for nurses throughout the state has been 25% over the last year and over 30% for critical care nurses. So that's fairly low considering the rapid increase of an elderly population in Florida. The report found the shortage to be 53,700 nurses short from what is needed. A bunch of other states are also experiencing similar situations, but Florida specifically, just because its population is rapidly increasing since a lot of people are tending to move down to the Sun Belt recently after what we saw with COVID. And so what's the solution to this problem? There is always the proposal of increasing wages in general for nurses, just because, again, taking into consideration what I said earlier, the increase in anxiety, stress, and depression, a lot of nurses just feel like the work they're putting in isn't getting the same amount out of it. They just, basically, they feel like they're being underpaid for the strenuous work they're doing. But when I was interviewing both Justin Sr. and Mary Mayhew, Justin Sr. is the CEO of the um, Safety Net Hospital Alliance of Florida, they both kind of stressed how it really starts with the education system, um, especially with nursing school applications. They said they have more people in Florida than ever applying to nursing schools. It's just that there aren't enough seats in these nursing schools to allow for like a greater amount of nursing students. So it really starts with that people want to be nurses. It's just they're not being, it's just so much harder for them to actually get into school to learn how to be a nurse. So a lot of that starts with um, funding in the government. Like they need to be like, they need to cater towards expanding faculty and having more nurses be willing to teach in schools. And a, a lot of it really is um, in the education system, which I found really interesting because I always thought it was just a wage issue, but no. Mm-hmm. You can read more of Alexandra's work on the FPR website. And that's it for today, Wednesday, November 3rd. You can find me on Twitter at N-O-R-O-N-E-L and be sure to check out our website. Thanks for tuning in to Florida Politics Review.